Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we're going to talk about uh, education and uh, learning for kids and adults and all that sort of stuff. And we are joined by uh, Matthew Meehan, who is the Director of Academic Programs for Hillsdale in D.C. He's a professor of, Assistant Professor of Government in the Graduate School of Government there at Hillsdale, uh, which is located in uh, Michigan, but he's in D.C. because they're also in Washington, D.C. He is also the author of several children's books, uh, including uh, Mr. Meehan's Mildly Amusing Mythical Mammals, and uh, just released, probably by the time you are hearing this, uh, within a day or two, uh, The Handsome Little Signet. So, first of all, uh, Dr. Meehan, welcome to the program. (laughs) Thank you very much. Okay, so... Uh, let's talk a little bit, you know, uh, uh, we often have authors on to talk about their new book. Uh, this is the first time, uh, we've had someone on to talk about a children's book. Uh, so I want to talk about that, but first maybe just tell us what this, what is the book about? Uh, well, the new book, the handsome little signet is a storybook. Um, it's, you know, beautiful watercolors, lightly metered prose, uh, a tale, taking place in Central Park in Manhattan about a family of swans and their little baby swan or signet. Uh, And, uh, you know, he gets into a little trouble um, and uh, sort of doesn't quite know how to grow up uh, and doesn't know what he should try to become and how to do that. Uh, And, you know, he goes through a little bit of an adventure to figure that out. Um, It features a you know, beautiful sort of strong family of swans uh, trying to make it in the big city. So uh, I am interested because I I have read both of your uh, children's books and uh, it's interesting because they're very different. So the, the Mr. Meehan's mildly amusing mythical mammals. um, I mean, it's very, very layered, right? I mean, uh, uh, it has uh, like the the prose, the poems, or whatever have uh, uh, a whiff of the Jabberwocky style to them. And then I've also heard you just des- you know describing like all the different uh, like literary and classical allusions in the poems and accompanying illustrations and how like oh if you look in the third row of this classroom. The book there is, you know, Cicero's On Duties and, you know, blah, 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 blah. So whereas, uh, you know, The Handsome Little Signet, I, I mean, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good book, but it's very, it's, it's a lot more simple, right? Um, the book, you know, the vocabulary and the words uh, and, you know, the, the very beautiful illustrations there. Um, and the story, you know, is, is, uh, seemingly more simple and straightforward. So like, what is the, the, the purpose of the, the book as particularly distinguished from the prior book? And, you know, h- how did you think to, to do this? 
Yeah. So um, the difference between them, why I decided to do something different is um, I had done something for middle grade readers that was very much a kind of introduction to the Greco-Roman, Judeo-Christian, Christian humanist kind of tradition. Uh, and yeah, it's very elaborate. Uh, it's, you know, 26 oil paintings, 26 inks, tons of other sketches, a huge glossary. Like it's very complicated. And like I wrote it so that if you were like a PhD in literature, you could enjoy it. But if you were also like five years old, you could enjoy it. And I thought that was like a really cool challenge. I went for it. I don't I mean, I think I did a good job. I think it's good for the whole family. I wanted to write a family book, not a kid's book. So all the way up the spectrum of readers, you can you can do something with it. But that's one kind of book, right? And and another kind of book is something that is very easily accessible, uh, that doesn't require a family uh, and is more for a little person. So I wrote a book that's more a little bit independent. And that kind of fits the theme of this book. It's about coming of age of a little one, right? And reading a book by yourself uh, as a little person is kind of fitting for such a topic. So uh, I went for something simpler. I also, you know, like, look, I, I'm, I'm a writer. I like to sort of flex different kinds of skills, right? Show your chops uh, and practice. And the last one was everything was out and sort of, you know, dangling around. Like it was very sort of uh, Rococo. And so I wanted this one to be a little more Hemingway-esque, like just shaved down to very simple. Um, and, you know, and that's appropriate for little kids. Yes, the bullfighting scenes I thought were very well done. Um, Thank you. <laughs> what, uh, so, you know, this is something, so I, I have uh, little kids, um, as do you, I believe. Uh, Doug, uh, you don't have little kids, but um, anymore, I guess I should say. Peace be upon you, Doug. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I've got I've got one on his way to college and one a year away from college. Yeah. But so it is interesting to me, you know, like uh, so I've read a lot of children's books, uh, uh, many of them many, many times in a row. Um, uh, actually, uh, my my mom. uh she got us a version of Goodnight Moon that had like a recording of her reading the book, which is great, except that my son still wants me to turn the pages. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, so, so I have thought a lot about, you know, what makes for a good children's book, uh, particularly something that, you know, kids will like and will want you to read over and over and over again. Um, a lot of, Kids books these days don't, I mean, I, I don't know, like uh, I think the Biden administration or maybe it was uh, natural libraries, there was like a reading day or whatever. And they had this list uh, of kids books that they put out there and just looking through it, it you know, they did a lot of it seemed very um, uh, like message oriented and stuff that uh, I don't know that like kids would be particularly interested in reading, particularly little kids. And, you know, the illustration style was not necessarily that, that appealing either. Uh, but I mean, I, I don't know, like what, what, what do you think makes for a kind of enduring kids book? Something, something like the people will like the, the, the 
the kids will want to read and the parents will want to, will be okay with reading to the kids. And it may even last down the generations like Goodnight Moon, or I know you have some, uh, some complicated feelings about Dr. Seuss, uh, <laughs> but uh, which we, I'm, I'm happy to talk about, but, uh, but you know, his books uh, mostly stood the test of time, you could say. So what, like, I mean, you know, what, what is your thinking about what makes for an enduring good kid's book? Yeah. So sort of long lasting versus long lasting and good are two different things, I suppose. Right. Like uh, I think to make it long lasting, it's got to be delightful. And, you know, I think Dr. Seuss does that with basically all of his books. They're all very delightful. Um, and a lot of them are instructive in just basics of literacy, you know, which is huge. It's, that was the cat in the hat's triumph. To be both sort of delightful and instructive, that's much harder. Um, and that's, I think, that's the brass ring of kid lit um, and all literature, right? The old, uh, what is it from Horace's Ars Poetica, right? That it must be dulce, sweet, right? But utile, useful, right? For instruction. Um, so it's good to be both witty and wise, sort of pleasant and formative. Um, but that's hard to get the mix right. Um, but it can be done. But I think those, those are the two sort of composites, uh, pieces. But then it, that's almost like Steve Martin's old joke, how to make a million dollars tax free in 10 easy steps. Step one, get a million dollars. Right. So how do you do that? Uh, you know, like part of it is, I think really having an attention to, nature right like to the beauty of nature and thinking about what is naturally beautiful and then heightening that rearranging that in provocatively artful ways but but i do think that's actually a good way to make a lasting uh book that both delights and instructs to just delight uh i, I think you 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 want to um just right have a lot of things happen Right. Uh, have a show, like make things happen, uh, surprise people. That'll make them laugh. Usually um, that kind of thing with Goodnight Moon, actually. Right. That that is such a primordial. That's almost an infant's book. Right. Right. It's almost not a children's book. Right. Uh, I, I actually and I, I, I really admire the the the, the repetition the sort of almost chanting incantation that's designed to put a child to sleep. Right. But, but, but isn't just to put them to sleep. It's also a song which feels enchanting and mysterious and beautiful. And in some sense, therefore transcendent like a heavenly body, like the moon. Uh, I try to actually do a little something like that in the handsome signet. There's a number of repetitions that play out throughout the short story um, a little more subtly and less sort of in, infantilized like good night moon. I'm not knocking it, but it's much more. Right. It's yeah. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. But yeah, but like the, the NEA you're talking about the national education associations uh, read across America books. I believe I was. Uh, and that was, that was where they canceled Dr. Seuss who they usually launch it on his birthday this year. Biden was the first president since its inception to not put any uh, mention of Dr. Seuss into the, the, you know, read across America launch day. 
and the lists were so woke. Uh, you know, it was basically just, you know, representation of various um, minority groups, gays and lesbians, coming of age, uh, trans kids. Like it was just very much like all of the agenda uh, of the of the March of the Wokies kind of thing. Um, some beautiful books intermingled uh, and even a couple that I, you know, beautiful books uh, that were featuring minority communities and things that were gorgeous and to be commended and should have been on the list. But it was a, it was definitely, it wanted you to feel taught to very powerfully um, as a list. And um, a, a lot of the books are, you know, sort of pushing hard on the agenda. It's a little more scoldy in a way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, some of the book descriptions uh, that I saw did, did seem like verging on if parody was the right word, but just like very, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know, like disabled immigrants learning from their abula about their gender nonconformity or what, you know, it's, it's just like, a, it's almost kind of like a checklist or Mad Libs type of, approach to some of it uh yeah a lot of it was was fine uh you know sort of like there's nothing wrong with like a book about a kid in a wheelchair or you know like right it's all fine it's just at a certain point you kind of go huh you know out of 109 books right that's how many were on the list there's there's like you know most of them have like some sort of special issue so there's no attempt to sort of clear away those concerns uh, and just talk about the human enterprise, like just being a human being. Uh, and it's much more about like your identity and your particular place. Very few, frankly, Aesop like uh, books. They're mostly humanoids, right? They're, they're human beings for the most part. And so then you give them a race and a place and, a, and a, you give them a sex and you give them a gender or you queer the gender or whatever, right? Like I actually deliberately chose swans and ducks and things uh, in order to extrapolate away from that to sort of think about the human condition, which is what Aesop did, right? And this those books are, are not like that. The one thing I will say about that NEA list that's really sort of the great sort of tragedy is there's very few representations of boys mm, mm -hmm. of just normal, happy, healthy boys. Uh, lots of happy, healthy girls, lots of sort of unhappy, unhealthy boys and girls and, you know, lots of, uh, of um, different minority groups represented indigenous people, lots of, you know, not lots, but a, a surprising number of sort of trans kid type stories. Uh, but, but it's, um, it's, there's not a lot of young boys represented. So that was another thing I want to do with, uh, the handsome little signet. It's a handsome little boy. It's a little, you know, child, but it's a male child, which is very rare, frankly, in books these days, because it's just not part of the agenda right now. So what, so you, you talked about like, uh, uh, instruction, you know, like uh, books should be delightful, but also instructive. And, uh, you know, I do wonder sometimes, um, to what extent, 
like the message of like you know you take like a book and you try and uh extract some sort of underlying message or values from it or whatever uh sometimes some sometimes it's done in a very ham-handed and obvious way other times perhaps more subtly so and i do wonder sometimes to 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 what effect effect to what extent does that sort of stuff even really get through to the kids right you know do they like if they are if they if they're reading the cat in the hat are they are they taking away from it uh like a philosophy of uh you know anarchy or uh you know racism or white supremacy depending on who you talk to <laughs> you know i i don't i like I don't know. I know you have a perspective on this, uh, but it's something that I do wonder sometimes because there's a lot of there's a there's a lot of uh, you know uh, time and effort and thought and debate devoted to like the message behind these books. And but sometimes I wonder. It's like um, like do kids even really get it? Um, yeah, I think that they do. Uh, I think the human mind and the human heart and the human body are really powerful interfaces and pick up a lot, even if those things aren't all articulable at the time. Um, and yeah, do they pick up like secret teachings? Like the, the criticism of Cat in the Hat, right? Is that he's out of the minstrel show type of, uh, you know, he's basically, he's a, the cat is kind of a racist character. Uh, no, I don't think they pick up those kinds of like, two degrees of separation symbolism, unless there's some hint to them elsewhere in the book that like is a possible puzzle they could discover later with their mind, like intellectually. That's why I have a big glossary uh, uh, to, to actually have cool and beautiful themes that when you're older, you can go look up some of the words in the poems and the definitions start to play on different symbols and ideas that are in the poems and then you can go back to the poems and grow in your knowledge but but the human heart and the senses sort of the more uh emotional sort of the eq version i think you pick up quite a bit um but it's not the same stuff necessarily um and you can sort of have different kinds of feelings about different sorts of things happening and i do think that's what the poets do they tend to to fashion the human heart and help you fashion your heart. And uh, if you don't have good stories uh, that are doing that in a wise and intentional way, you're going to have either sort of careless stories that do it in a very careless and unintentional way. And so a disheveled heart, or you have actual, I think now more and more there's, there's real sort of creepy kind of, predatorial ideological like i'm going to reshape these children according to these emotional pathways with these ideals uh you know it goes all the way back to plato's republic right like the poets homer shapes the city um i really think it's a, a very serious and overlooked part of civic society about about on this issue of what shapes the heart Let's let's move on then to a slightly. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna ascend the age range, like uh, you know, we're ascending like Dante in in the uh, Paradiso, um, or maybe it's we're beautiful. descending. I don't know. It's beautiful, Josiah. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Um, 
so, you know, let's talk about uh, older kids. Uh, they go into school. And, of course, uh, we've lately, there's been a lot of controversy and conversation about the, you know, curriculum wars. Those have kind of been going on. But there are, you know, uh, uh, there was a couple of years ago, the New York Times did its essay series on what it called the 1619 Project, um, uh, you know, I guess uh, the summation of which was that the true founding of America was not uh, in 1776 or 1789 or any of those dates. It was 1619 when the first uh, slaves arrived in uh, the colonies. And that that, you know, slave, like the, the history and foundation of America is based on, on slavery, I guess. So, and then, of course, uh, in response, uh, there's a, there is a, the 1776 project, uh, which you were associated with, is developing its own curriculum. The 1619 project was turned into uh, curricular for schools, I believe. Um so maybe maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Uh, what is the 1776 project? You know, why do you think it's important? Why are you associated with it? And how does it relate to like the 1619 stuff? Yeah. So the 1776 uh, curriculum, Hillsdale College, is putting out as part of its sort of wider K through 12 program guide for American classical education. Um, it's it's been sort of kicked off from the 1776 commission, which was started uh, at the end of the previous administration. Uh, President Arne and uh, Dr. Matthew Spaulding, who's the dean of the grad school out here, were both on that commission. Uh, once it was disbanded uh, on inauguration day, which was a little ridiculous. Um, but uh, once it was disbanded, uh, it continued to convene uh, and produced a, a, a lengthier version of the report that it released on Martin Luther King Day. But it was disbanded. I mean, uh, yes, right. be if it's disbanded. Private citizens, uh, right, can assemble. It's a part of our freedoms. But um, uh, so that was wound up producing a beautiful book with full you know, footnotes and research on this. But in the back was also an addendum on civic education uh, and how to think about the founding, think about the country in a positive light that doesn't hide the blemishes and the evils of slavery and racism uh, and you know, the denial of civil rights um, to African-Americans. But, but, uh, but, but situating that in the struggle to live out the principles of the country uh, and also just the, the positive account of our history as a people, right? There is a good story to tell alongside the bad. Um, uh, and, and pedagogically speaking, uh, this is with regard to the 1619 Project being not just a graduate school, uh, you know, debate about the evils of uh, slavery, but as a kind of pedagogical theory about what's best to teach young people, to start with an overwhelming wave of negativity about one's country is actually really dangerous. Uh, and so uh, it's bad for their mental health and 
uh, and for their, their, their civic life uh, and, and frankly, for their own liberty um, to, uh, to feel like you're part of an evil country is to, in a certain sense, spiritually disenfranchised. So it's pretty dangerous stuff that the 1619 Project's playing around with. But um, so we, we, we transitioned the report from the commission into a curriculum. And so what we're, what we're releasing uh, towards the end of July, uh, either July 19th or August 1st, right around in there, we're, we're, we're racing to get it out uh, in time for teachers to be able to use it for the next school year. Uh, we've done all the, the writing now, it's all sort of being formatted and graphic designed. But um, it's basically history units for kindergarten through second grade on the founding and civil war. There's another version for third through fifth. There's one for middle school, one for high school. We've got four different middle school civics, you know, curricula sections that are sort of units you can drop into a government course or a history class. And then we've got a total and complete high school government uh, course with eight units and the whole nine yards plus a teacher's guide, an introduction. And it's all keyed to uh, Wilford McClay's beautiful new textbook, New Hope. So um, uh, that's, um, you know, it's a full thing and it's offered free. We're going to give it away free. So we're we're super uh, happy about it. It's really quite an achievement. A lot of people have worked on it. I've been on it, but others. One of the cool features that I really like kind of speaking to the question of uh, concern for the heart, um, uh, the, I think the, uh, uh, one of the features is uh, ideas, and by the way, it's not New Hope, that's Star Wars. Uh, it's Land of Hope uh, <laughs> by Wolfram McClay. Um, is the, we have a section on the human heart where like each unit has sort of the American mind, like things to think about, but the American heart, like things to move the heart, both to pity, right? For suffering to uh, righteous indignation for injustice, but, but, but often and importantly for admiration and love and gratitude for things that our ancestors did to sacrifice, to bring us the goods we have today in our country. So it's a very neat and thoughtful project. Um, that's a lot of primary sources, um, lots of help for teachers, um, and then keyed to Land of Hope. So, Yeah, so uh, I do want to follow up on one thing that you said. Uh, you said something about, you know, it's, it's dangerous to, to, like, teach hatred of your country is like a foundation that gets us something, something like that. Um, and... Uh, it's interesting because um, there has been a lot of uh, controversy lately about uh, the teaching of so-called critical race theory in schools. And there was an op-ed published, I guess, maybe a week or two ago in the New York Times uh, that had a number of co-authors, David French, uh, Jason Stanley, who's a philosopher professor at Yale, uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams, the uh, uh, writer who lives in France. There's someone else, but um, uh, I don't necessarily want to talk about the CRT stuff in particular, although uh, we can. But there was one thing that struck me in, in that op-ed is that it said, you know, because these 
some of these uh, states, state bills, uh, you know, talk about how like uh, teachers should not tell students that they should feel guilty on account of their race or things like that. And one of the one of the uh, arguments that was made in this op-ed was, well, uh, you know, if you had applied these, you know, same standards to Germany after World War II, then, you know, like, uh, if you couldn't tell German children that they shouldn't have been, like, ashamed of, you know, Nazi Germany or other things like that, um, you know, like, that wouldn't have been allowed. And there was something uh, that struck me as a little off on that. It's It's something that I've kind of heard people make uh, these sorts of analogies uh, before there's like, I'm kind of, I'm kind of rambling here, but to a a purpose, Um, you know, there's like another, another case that I was talking about uh, that that struck in my mind where I was having a conversation with someone about uh, this is about Texas history. uh, And in particular, you know, Texas is a state, that has a kind of maybe uh, emerging Hispanic majority. Uh, Non-Hispanic whites are a plurality in Texas. They're not the majority. And, you know, if current trends continue, uh, always a dangerous caveat, but if current trends continue, you know, eventually they're going to be a majority or whatever. And someone was comparing, you know, the situation of Anglos in Texas to the British in India and, you know, how like they had to like accept, you know, uh, uh, transformation or whatever. And these, these like analogies, they seem to have, I, I don't know, they, there's something that seems a little off about them because, you know, I don't consider the United States to be Nazi Germany and, you know, Texas is not, uh, you know, the British Raj, you know, like it's, it's kind of we like a weird, almost alien, uh, perspective on your, uh, on like your own country and culture that I don't know where that comes from. Do you, do you, uh, so that was very long. I hope that in the length, the, uh, essence of the question comes through. Yeah. I, I mean, so I almost feel like this is like a trap in that New York Times op-ed, which is designed to get people to like say something stupid about Hitler. And then, oh, look, you're, you know, like, like a part of me doesn't want to touch it with a 10 foot pole. It's like, that's a trap. That's right. bait. Quote Mad Max. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, 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 uh, but I, I, I guess the comparison for me is twofold. One, we fought ourselves and have continued to fight ourselves in order to bring about uh, a, a correction of a, a serious evil, right? Uh, it was the peculiar institution or rather the rattlesnake under the desk, right? Like the slavery and the mistreatment of black Americans and, and others too for, you know, there's other crimes too, native Americans and things, but, but, uh, um, the, we fought it off, like it was sui generis. Like we didn't like the German case is we had to go and sacrifice the lives of many other countries in order to get them to stop doing what they were doing. Uh, so in one sense, 
our suffering through a civil war and our own rancorous history with regard to civil rights is the story of right settling something and trying to improve and overcome uh, and let the better angels of our nature win out. Um, so it's a kind of glorious moral battle there, which is how most history classes are taught prior to any of this CRT 1619 stuff. That's how I taught my class. I mean, that's how many people teach their classes in part, right? If it's only that, then it can be uh, kind of crazy. So that's the one side. The other side is I'd be curious. I mean, I know some educators in Germany and, and uh, you know, the sort of vitality and love of, uh, of um, uh, and this is the 10 foot pole part, which I'm sure, you know, someone could try to misconstrue this and go like, ha look at me in. But, but, but nevertheless, there is a certain, I would still be careful about how you talk about the evils and they were outrageous, grievous evils of committed by large portions of the German people, right? And they're particularly their leadership and their intellectual class, right? Uh, like that was pretty doggone evil in the grand scheme of evil. Uh, but do you tell the third grader, like all we're going to do this year is think about Hitler and the evils of the Holocaust and the Third Reich, right? Or do you... you and how you, you were responsible for... Yeah, like, and, or do you... Or, and right, and put them on the spot. Or do you think about the good and beauty of the German language and, uh, you know, the the, 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 the the Holy Roman Emperor, you know, trying to fight off, uh, you know, the... the, the uh, invaders at some point, like find some heroic stories, good things about the German people uh, and start with things that are lovable in order to help them feel like they're a part of something that is good and can be good again and can be better, right? You have to start positively and you have to blow on those embers of the heart uh, with the proper lessons for the mind. And, and uh, so it just dodged the whole question in my mind about how do you carefully introduce these evils. And I don't think the 1619 Project and CRT uh, are thinking in a loving and thoughtful way about education. I think they're ideo ideologically angry and pushing uh, a particular uh, ideological bent down from the universities into schools. And I'm a 20 year, I, I, I'm at a college now but I was 20 years in teaching middle and high school and building and starting curriculums for private schools and for charter. So I came from the other, I came from practicing the art of teaching, not from the ivory tower shooting my darts from above. Um, and I think that's what the danger of this is. What's, what's your thoughts on when is an appropriate time to actually start introducing the history of slavery, Holocaust, other atrocities. What's, what are your thoughts on when you can do that and, and just how you can start to introduce those type of uh, inhumanities of human history? Yeah. So it's, I mean, in one sense you could say, well, you can get very subjective and say, well, it depends on your community. It depends on your learner. Um, but the, the way the, the way it's generally done is people will mention the, the, the evils, but they won't necessarily reflect on them powerfully. 
right? And won't magnify them in the mind. So like the idea of, can you mention slavery to a kindergartner or a first grader, third grader, fifth grader? Certainly, right? That can come up and should in a certain sense, rightly understood. But, you know, how much do you meditate upon it, right? People need a certain amount of mental and emotional uh, foundations before they handle serious evil. It's akin to the question of like, when can a kid see uh, a more violent war movie, right? Do you, right? Do, when, when should they actually engage those things? Um, and, and so there's, there's a certain kind of judgment that once you get into, uh, you know, late middle school, uh, you can start handling these things or, you know, middle school, seventh and eighth grade, you can start handling these things more uh, seriously uh, and engage in more of the dangers and difficulties of it. Um, but even then, I would say that's one issue which I've been taking up. The others with regard to some of those things is also uh, just making sure you, that you tell the positive truths as well, right? There's the sort of uh, almost Hamlet-like endeavor of like everything is stained by uh, the one sin. And so there's no ability with the 1619 project to, to sort of talk about anything other than being sort of structurally racist and, uh, um, you know, tainted at every turn and not everything in American history is tainted by the evil. Uh, you can actually have positive lessons, um, but that's a whole other part of it. So let's, uh, so to wrap up, let's, um, let's talk about the last level, uh, in, you know, ascending or descending order, which is, you know, you teach, uh, grad students, right. Uh, or, uh, you know, folks in DC, first of all, what are you doing t teaching people in DC, right. Uh, that, you know, uh, what, wh wh what are you trying to do there? Possible. <laughs> yeah. So we do, I teach both the, the Hillsdale internship program, these young guys um, that uh, uh, and, and girls, I mean, it's just college students, undergrads from uh, uh, the home campus come out and do an internship and we teach them. So I teach them uh, a literature course. Uh, the uh, We have offer politics, international relations, economics, history, a bunch of courses out here so they can continue their degree while interning. Um, that's for the undergrads. But then the new master's in government, uh, the Van Andel Graduate School in Government out here is basically for, you know, established but young professionals, sort of, you know, mid-20s, mid-30s, people who are involved in the the big political fight out here. Uh, and we, we offer a, a night classes and weekends. It's a fully accredited master's in government. Um, that's designed to help them, you know, steer the ship of state in a way uh, and be leading citizens in a thoughtful but practical way, too. So, you know, we've got people, you know, who are drafting legislation in, in, the, the, in the Congress. We've got people in the administrative uh, offices. Uh, we've got people in think tanks, journalists. Uh, you know, you name it, all kinds of different uh, walks of life here in the big, uh, the big game. But, uh, you know, we're right on Capitol Hill, so we can help them with uh, 
you know, classes and we have political theory, we have literature, we have uh, rhetoric, we have most importantly, in a certain sense, American politics and sort of the history of our founding and the civil war. And then we have statecraft courses on how to, you know, ethically wield power, uh, in, in a you know way that's you know in accord with those principles but is not imprudent and impractical and pointless um, so it's a it's a really neat thing we bring we have our own faculty here and then we have professors coming out from Hillsdale uh, and then we also have uh, people uh, who have practiced government or or even practicing we've had city senators uh, we're gonna have a, a representative uh, we have uh, columnists for major papers um, investigative journalists. Um, we have uh, professors from the Eastern Seaboard too who have specialties. So it's a really neat program. Uh, about two years old now. All right. Our guest today has been Dr. Matthew Meehan. His latest book, The Handsome Little Signet, uh, is available July 20th. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you both.